Today we're sitting down with, well, I think it's time we had some real journalism on the show, a real journalist. This is Adam Crichton. He is an award-winning journalist who writes for The Australian, currently as the Washington correspondent over there in the US of A. Uh, he's, you may have seen his writing, I've seen him for quite a number of years growing up, uh, writing for what The Wall Street Journal, The Economist, uh, The Australian. Uh, and today I'd love to talk to him about what journalism is and what he's hearing on the ground in the USA. I think you might be, Adam, the first real journalist I've interviewed. I, actually, no, I interviewed Peter Hitchens. I'm not sure if he's a journalist. He's a bit more of an opinion I think so. writer. I think he is. Is he? Look, I think he'd say he's a journalist in the classic sense of the word. I mean, journalism is just criticism and expression of ideas, really, at its core. You know, one thing he said to me that stuck with me was uh, the correct relationship between a journalist and a government should be that of a dog and a lamp post. Yeah, no, look, I think that's good. I mean, I think I think, um, I think journalism has become a bit too, uh, sorry, not critical enough of government, actually, uh, for various reasons we might want to go into. But, uh, I mean, I try to be critical. Uh, certainly I've been critical the last few years, as you probably know, of the COVID response. Uh, that was somewhat exhausting, but I, think, uh, but I think it was valuable what I did in that regard. Uh, I think it was very valuable criticism. Well, let's talk about that, Adam. So thank you for joining me. That's It's uh, actually sure. an honour that I'm talking to real journalist. Um, so Adam, you, you've said some pretty big things about COVID. I, rem- I remember you calling it health fascism. That's a big yeah, thing to basically. call. Well, look, I mean, as an opinion writer, you want to come up with catchy phrases, right? That's that's mm. part of the craft. Uh, you know, and, and sometimes that might seem like exaggeration, but I still think that's it's appropriate, actually. And I don't resolve from that, from that claim. I think what we saw in the last three years was just extraordinary breakdown of our civil institutions and, and, and any sense of proportion and common sense. I mean, I really think it was verging on a mass hysteria, actually. I, I still almost can't believe it happened. I mean, some of the things I think we'll look back in Australia and thank God I missed the worst of it back there. I was here. But I think we'll look back at the things that were done in just, in just shock and horror at the insanity of them. They're so destructive, so futile. Well, how much uh, did you time. see? Were you, when did you leave Australia? During the so lockdown? I started here on the 1st of April 2021. So okay. I often joke with my friends that I'm, I'm one of the few people in the world that actually kind of missed all the lockdowns because in 2020, Australia didn't really have many. I mean, there was one at the beginning and I was there for that. But the 2021 madness, as I call it, in Australia, I was, I was here and by that time in the US, all the lockdowns had more or less finished as well. So I kind of missed, um, you know, the worst of it, but I certainly paid attention to it and, uh, you know, and I've paid attention to it ever since. And I kind of wrote a, a few weeks ago, I wrote an I told you so column yeah. <laughs> basically telling everyone how right I was. And I can't believe how, at least in my opinion, how right I was. I mean, I didn't think at the time that the data would be so overwhelmingly just bad and shocking for the proponents of mandates and lockdowns. I mean, it really is just extraordinary. And I think to prove my point, you don't see anyone now singing the praises of those policies. Everyone's silent. There are some. There are some, <laughs> right? I think they're colloquially called zeros on Twitter because they're committed to COVID zero. Well, that was, I mean, I mean, anyone that supported that policy really shouldn't be listened to again on, on any serious matter. And I'm not going to name names because I'm not in the business of personal criticism and I never have been. But there are some prominent people in Australia who advocated that, and they are still being taken seriously. I mean, I find that extraordinary. Uh, I mean, to advocate something that is so demonstrably demonstrably, um, destructive and stupid, even from first principles, I mean, to think that a government can control a contagious virus is insane, actually. 
And yet that's the underlying premise of that policy, uh, that society will behave like your mathematical models, and it certainly will not. And, I mean, anyone intelligent should have known that. And, and sometimes I oscillate between thinking whether these people are not intelligent or, or somehow evil. <laughs> it's some combination of the two, you know. I mean, I guess more charitably I'd like to think they're not intelligent. Adam, are you, are you aware that currently in New South Wales we are returning to some of these policies? I just got a text today from some parents whose uh, children are being told they must mask again. Uh, and we really? had a, yes, and we had, I think, four classes went back to remote learning about two weeks ago because of an escalating uh, COVID cases back to- Well, that's uh, extraordinary. I didn't know that. Mm. Uh, and that's very depressing because it suggests to me we've learned nothing as a society. And even though the data is overwhelming that, that at a population level, masks do nothing. I mean, I don't think it, I don't, I don't see how it could be any clearer. Um, you know, whatever your, you know, case study mathematical models might show, the reality is they don't do, they don't do anything and they have costs too. And it's, I mean, I find it staggering. That's the case, but it's also the case here in the U S there are, there are pockets of the U S uh, I'm just trying to think where I think Boston, perhaps maybe some cities in San, maybe some parts of San Francisco where that, where they have reintroduced, mask mandates for kids. And of course, for kids, I mean, how absurd. I mean, kids were never a threat anyway. Um, so it's all very strange. It's all very political and it is extremely political and tribal. It's got nothing to do with science or proportion or cost-benefit analysis. It's just tribalism and signaling what, you know, what group you're part of. So Adam, you've made some uh, criticisms and even just now over this hysteria, but I must I'm sorry, but you're part of the mainstream media, so I must ask, what did you guys do? I don't understand why the media was pushing it so hard as well. What is the go? Well, look, I mean, people, I mean, I do it too. I kind of lump mainstream media together sometimes. Uh, but the reality is we're all different people. And, I mean, I mean, I have the fortune of having a column each week. So more than most journalists, I can give my own view. Uh, that's a great privilege. I'm very grateful for that. But people had different views in the mainstream media. I mean, it saddened me that most people were in favour of, of all of those draconian restrictions. Uh, but I think you'll find a lot of them have changed their mind or at least they will no longer argue what they did at the time. Um, look, I mean, I, I mean, generally I was disappointed with the, with the media response and I've written that in The Australian. A few weeks ago I wrote, I wrote a critical comment about the media's response to vaccine mandates Uh which you know were prosecuted with almost a religious uh, zeal. I think I think you won't find that anymore because clearly there are some injuries out there, and and I think I think in hindsight most people would probably say it was a mistake to force them on people. Certainly, it went against any prior uh, you know kind of prior medical ethics. Certainly, given that the vaccines were rushed, obviously they were they were, they were new. They they didn't go through the normal procedures. You, you would think under those circumstances you would not force them on an entire population, but but that's what happened. Uh, and I think we're you know I think the collateral damage of that, both health and political, is going to last years. Um, but it's true, as you suggest, most people supported it. <laughs> so I, I mean I mean I didn't. Uh, but certainly on the vaccine issue, as opposed from uh, lockdowns, I was a lot more muted about vaccine mandates because they were, they became, I mean, they became a religion. And you, you know, as you know through history, you don't, if you criticize the state religion, you can be burned at the stake. And so, so I was very reluctant to be burned at the stake. I'd gone quite far enough on lockdowns. I wasn't going to be burned at the stake by criticizing them at the time, but I certainly have now in the past, past year or so. 
So I understand the, uh, uh, the the religion around the vaccine mandates, but what I don't understand is the incentive behind large, whether it's even Sky News, you know, you're a contributor at Sky News, and sometimes, you know, Rita Panahi will sit there reading a, a mandatory little vac statement at the end of her piece, and it's like she's gone catatonic as she reads it. I don't know if she believes it or not. But what is the, what is the incentive for these big companies to prosecute this uh, religious zeal? I understand government's doing it, but I don't understand big media unless there's some kind of payment incentive. Well, look, I'm not going to get too much into the media in that regard because I am employed by it, so I'm not going to uh, kind of attack my my employers. But, I mean, it's it's obvious that um, you know, the pharmaceutical industry are big advertisers in the media generally. I'm not talking about Australia in particular, and it's less of a problem in Australia, I would say. It's certainly a problem in the US. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry in general here is very powerful because it's it's a country where they can advertise drugs on TV, which, of course, mm. does not happen in Australia. And when you allow that, uh, that has been consequences. It means that there's a lot of money flowing to media uh, uh, from the pharmaceutical sector. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't have any evidence, you know, any direct evidence of uh, corruption, but but you'd have to just from first principles think that if if this industry is giving you a lot of money, then you're going to be a little bit reluctant to, to criticise it uh, so I think that's part of the reason. But, you know, I don't think it's the main reason. I think most journalists just fell through the hysteria, actually. So I you've mean, I really seen... think that. I, you know, I mean, I don't think it's all because Big Pharma is, yeah. you know, is, is kind of, you know, is, is kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes. I just think a lot of people got very scared in early 2020 and they weren't looking at the numbers like I was. I mean, I think if you'd looked at the actual figures, cases and deaths and so forth and the early stuff coming out, you, you'd, you'd think, oh, this, this isn't as bad as we first thought. I mean, it was bad, but it was not, you know, it's, it wasn't a Spanish flu. <laughs> I mean, it was a, I mean, let's be frank, it was a bad cold. I mean, most people got it, they were fine, you know. Um, and yet we, we reacted like it was a Spanish flu. So you, have you seen uh, egregious examples such as Ali Langdon, who's not really a journalist, I get it, but, you know, on the Today Show with Carl there saying, you know, shut up, you need to be quiet to Craig Kelly, these sorts of figures, anyone, not just Craig Kelly, others as well, are just taking this really emotional position. That's not true, Craig. I mean, I spent time online mm. last night and yes. have managed to debunk every one of your theories. They're not peer-reviewed. They're not peer-reviewed. I, I, I don't, don't even want to theories. get into this because, well, I mean, you, you're the you, only person saying this. We've got no, to listen not. to our that's doctors incorrect. and our scientists. <clears throat> don't yes, you exactly need to doing. pull your head in? What no, I no, no. I, I did my research, well, Craig, as you I asked us to do. You need to listen for a moment. No worries, Craig. You're in a position of responsibility, and I think you're failing in that and duty. I'll continue, I'll continue to speak the truth and tell the truth. It'd be nice if wanna, you started. If the that media would be great. want to misrepresent my position, I'm going to come on and I'm going to defend it because I will not have slander and smear and said against me when the facts are incorrect. Okay, Craig. Hundreds of billions of dollars yes. spent in government stimulus. Mm -hmm. All our hopes are riding on a vaccine. Yes. You need to be quiet. And it's certainly made us very distrusting of, of the mainstream media, uh, many people. And so I'm wondering what your opinion now, yes. is now, yeah, what your opinion is of the future of that trust deficit that is there. Look, it's a difficult question. Uh, you know, I, you know, I can only speak for myself and I'm not going to criticize any other individuals. I, I, I never do that. I don't think I've ever done that in my 11 years. It's just I'm not going to criticise other journalists. They can live with their with their decisions. 
Um, but you know, I do my best to tell the truth in regards and 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 be be true to my principles. I think the media does have a you know, bit of a credibility problem post COVID because I think they did cheer on. I mean, generally speaking, they did cheer on these policies. Then there wasn't enough scrutiny of the fact that if you look at any any pandemic plan that was written before March 2020, mm. none of them recommended to do any of these things. Mm. Indeed, some of them specifically said do not do these things. And that was the result of years of science and introspection and common sense and just thought about how society worked. But then we just ignored all that. <laughs> and and very few journalists really even, even looked at that. I mean, I you know, it's so easy to Google things. I mean, you know, you can Google these pandemics. You can read them quite easily. They're still there. And you... Were they all wrong? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, I still struggle with this. I still don't understand what happened. I really don't understand what happened. And I think science and, you know, science as in, you know, the bureaucracy uh, that is, is really going to have to grapple with this in coming years. You know, they're going to have to reconcile those plans with what we did. And I don't think they're going to be able to do it. I think the only way they'll be able to do it is, is to concede that everyone was hysterical. That's the only way to explain what happened, I think, because otherwise it makes no sense. I mean, you have all these plans, you just completely ignore them. What's the point of the plans? Yeah. Well, I mean, we did take on the, we did just copy Italy in the end, didn't we? Who copied China? So well, kind of- well, that's right, copy China. And, and, yeah. and I mean, as you know, I mean, it sounds like you, you kind of know a bit about this. Uh, even, you know, Niall Ferguson said <laughs> the only reason that we got away with this was, was because Italy somehow managed to copy China and it, and it worked. They got away with it. I think that was the phrase he used. So we got away yes. with it. Yes. Something like that. And that's pretty scary. I mean, I admire him for his frankness. It was great. Yeah, I think he told the London Times that. It's a tremendous quote. So, so I really admire his candor because for the historical record, we know that even, you know, so-called Professor Lockdown realised that this was not in the pandemic plans at all. It's just that China did it. And then, of course, China's policy... Well, you know, we get into that, but those death figures earlier on, mm. you know, we all kind of believe those figures, yeah. right? I mean, when they were flatlined at 3,268 for like two years, I mean, we seriously yeah. believe that? Yeah. <laughs> but that's what, and, but, but that was the argument for the, for the lockdowners in the West. They said, oh, look how effective it is in China. No one's died. But then, of course, when they lifted the lockdowns at the end, you know, like six months ago, a year ago, whatever it was, and there was no sudden surge in Chinese deaths, at least nothing, you know, nothing too crazy. Then they started to say the figures aren't right. There must be a lot of death. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of funny uh, for anyone who'd been kind of following it. So there was this huge bias, if you like, in favour of state action. So you, so you just always had to justify state action somehow, whatever the figures said. And I found that somewhat depressing. Well, can you give us an insight, Adam, into what's it like to work inside uh, media corporations? Because looking from the outside, it's it's easy to think you see this, you know, the sponsored by Pfizer thing on the back of very American mm. um, TV show. Do you actually experience some kind of cultural pressure to take particular lines, especially in in, in a news corp type organization? That's the common accusation from Crikey and friends, right? How free are people in those jobs to speak their minds? Well, there's this perception that, you know, that we all follow some line. I think that's completely wrong. I mean, I, I've certainly never been told to write anything uh, in my 11 years. So, you know, I think it's false in my experience. Uh, there's no – I've never found pressure. I mean, if you look through the columns I've written over the years, the controversial ones, many of them are traditional left-wing views. 
whether it's inheritance tax or income tax, top marginal tax rate, uh, or state ownership of, of you know, of, of uh, public infrastructure, you know, they're all left-wing things. I've advocated all those things from the opinion page of The Australian. I've never been stopped. So, you know, I'm not going to criticise my employer at all uh, in any way. That's specific. That's specific I mean, other people might have different views, but, I, but, you know, my view is I've never come under pressure. Yeah, okay. So that's specific pressure and, and even broader than just the Australian uh, and news. Cool. Uh, what about cultural pressure, just group thinking, wanting to fit in with the crowd, that kind of social pressure? Oh, look, maybe. I mean, that's but that affects every industry, right? That's not unique to media, I don't think. I mean, we're all we're all human. We're all subject to groupthink. Um, but you know, well, I mean, I've been in the US two years, so I'm a long way from the office, so so I don't get any of the the groupthink back there. Um, but even when I was there, I you know I don't think so. I think you know most journalists are intelligent people. They're thoughtful and most of the time, and you know journalists tend to be stubborn and opinionated. And they don't go into it to become rich, mm. so they often have principles. Uh, you know, they can be difficult to deal with. So I don't think they just you know fall into line. I mean, of course, editors in any newspaper at any point in history of the world will always have their preferences about what goes on the front page and what goes on page six. That's just newspapers. It's not some great revelation. That's what editors do. <laughs> you know, they have a line, and newspapers historically have a line. Isn't that the origin of newspapers? They, I mean. The history of them, you know, if you go back, is that they're you know, highly political. I think they're much less political now than they used to be, say, 200 years ago. Um, so, yeah, but look, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to get too much into the media because it's my industry and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be critical. So, so is it the case, um, not, not trying to get you to be critical, of it, but I'm trying to understand why we have, for example, The Guardian would take a more left-leaning line on an issue or um, uh, The Herald Sun or uh, uh, The Daily Telegraph would take more of a right-leaning issue, if I can use that old left-right dichotomy, although oh. it's broken. It, w- is that just a, an emergent phenomenon? It attracts a certain type of journalists? Uh, well, look, that's just, uh, and you're certainly right, the left-right thing is completely dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't, I don't even know what it means to say someone's right-wing anymore, really. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, well, look, if you want to be really, if you want to be an economist about it, I mean, the market has left-wing people and right-wing people, and media mm-hmm. companies are going to spring up to satisfy those markets. That's that's uh, always been the case. And so, you know, The Guardian and, you know, other newspapers maybe satisfy that group of people. And some people would argue that the News Corp and, and um, you know, maybe Daily Mail or whatever, they they satisfy the other group of people. Mm. That's just economics. That's not yeah. really anything sinister. <laughs> it's just I get it. if it wasn't The Guardian, it'd be some other company. I mean, it you know, it doesn't – that's why I always think it's strange when people criticise so-called shock jocks because if that yeah. particular shock jock wasn't there, some other shock jock would just be there. I mean, it's just economics. There's a market for that. It's going to exist. Right. Look, I, I miss Stan Zamanik. I wish him well. Hey, let's go to Washington, D.C. So sure. while, while you're over there, wh- okay, before we get to the feel in Washington, what is the view of Australia from your average American or f- from anyone over there? What did we look like to you guys during that time? Well, I guess we saw this week that, you know, the president cancelling his plan yeah. to travel to Australia. They obviously don't think as highly as they do of, say, Japan, maybe at least in a, in a in a political sense, and perhaps that's understandable. But I mean, the average American is very fond of Australians. I mean, I, I mean, all the Australian journalists I talk to here in Washington, we always, you know, we always comment about how extremely well received our accent is, hmm. uh, you know, and how Americans are very fond of us naturally. I mean, they have a very cliched kind of simplistic view of Australia, you know, kind of beaches and kangaroos and koalas and all that. 
I mean, I will say though that you know that 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 view has existed for years, mm. uh, but the COVID thing really shook, I think, some of those perceptions. I mean, I remember in New York last year, um, the doorman heard my accent at this hotel I was staying at, and he said, "Man, what happened to Australia?" You know, during COVID, like he was shocked at what happened, and of course he would have just seen images of you know, helicopters on the beach and so forth mm. and, you know, mm. lockdowns and quarantine camps and all that. But, I mean, he had a point. I mean, he, he was just kind of an ordinary guy and that was his view. And so, and he's not the only one that said that to me. A lot of people have said that to me. So I think I think the COVID pandemic, and, you know, I'm sorry to get back to it, <laughs> but, um, you know, it, that did shake Americans' perceptions of Australia. Well, it shook. I'm an Australian born in Sydney and, and I, I shook my perception. So let me ask you this. Do you think... Uh, Australia changed, and, and he's he's going. He said he said what happened, what changed, or do you think we've always been like this? And the caricature of Australians being happy-go-lucky and she'll be right, and and uh, uh, larrikins, that's not true. Yeah, look, I think it's not true. I think it was a caricature. I mean, the reality is Australia was a rich urban country, highly urbanised. Everyone lives in what five or six cities, basically, uh, very high per capita income. In that situation, you're going to get. A society that's not particularly hardy and that is that is used to the good life and and has a lot of faith in government, right? I mean, you you see the more people live in cities, the more they tend to vote for a big government. Uh, and so Australia is, is in that situation. I think Australia, you know, again, to go back to left-right divide, Australia is becoming more and more left-wing, so to speak. I mean, I think the Liberal Party is going to struggle with some of its previous ideals because people just, you know, they just don't care about fiscal rectitude. So it's not... It's not something that appeals to people anymore. Certainly doesn't appeal in the US where there's a $1.5 trillion deficit every single year. Clearly, fiscal rectitude is not high on the agenda. Uh, and it's it's going to be the same in Australia. So why is there so much of a, a pushback in the US? You've basically got half the country red, half the country blue, roughly speaking, right? Whereas in Australia, it's all just going left. When the US is also very rich and somehow you still have a strong sense of the independent spirit alive there. Amongst mm. half. Well, look, I think there's, you know, firstly, the historical factor. I mean, the constitution resonates very much here with people. I think ordinary people, even if they don't know the details, they still, you know, have an idea of what it means in terms of in, in terms of individual rights, etc. Um, but it's also the structure of US is different too. I mean, there's a lot more regional areas, so to speak. It's not as urbanized as Australia. Um, so you do have a lot more kind of country regions with a different perspective on life than people from people in the city. Um, and there's much greater variation of wealth, obviously, in the US as well. I mean, Australia is very standardised, I would say, whereas, you know, the uh, wealth inequality, income inequality here is just enormous. Uh, and, you know, you could argue it's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, it's, you know, whether it's a result of policy or, you know, I don't know. Um, it's a difficult question, but I think that, that, that makes American politics different too. And, of course, just the fact that, there's not compulsory voting here, right? Like most countries. Mm. So when you have voluntary voting, you get a lot of extreme politics. That's just the reality, whether it's France or the United States or Britain. So what's going on with the politics over there? So what are we to expect uh, Trump, DeSantis? Well, DeSantis isn't running, is he? Uh, what's Well, he probably will. I think he's he going to announce maybe next week. Is that the current rumour? Yeah. What's the mood 
we only get the media here and I'm not sure what to believe. What's the mood on the ground? What are people feeling over there? Because you, you think, oh, there's a big backlash against Biden and the Democrats, but then you see the election result and you go, oh, no, no, no. Half the country quite plainly loves the Democrat plan. Well, look, I mean, I must say it's hard in Washington, D.C. to really say you have your finger on the pulse of ordinary America because Washington, like Canberra, is an unusual city. It's, I mean, it's highly political. It's high income. Um, you know, it's very East Coast, it's very educated, all those things. Uh, but that said, you know, I mean, the poly, the 24 election is so far out still. What is it? One and a half years away. It's a long way away that I don't think most Americans would be paying too much attention really at the moment to who they're going to vote for, you know, in November next year. Uh, I mean, certainly it's fascinating as a journalist, but it's my job to watch the polls and so forth and, and to observe politics. It's it's incredible to see how well Trump has done since he announced in November last year when he was written off, including, I think, by me. Um, and I was wrong, obviously, <laughs> and so was everyone. Uh, you know, I mean, people mocked his announcement in Florida. You know, there were there were all those all those cases mounting against him at the time. I mean, it seemed like he was over from inside the beltway. But then over the past five months, you know, he's you know, he's gained about 20 percentage points in the polls. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. No one would have forecast that. Uh, and DeSantis, who was riding high back then, everyone thought that he was going to be the Republican nominee. He's, mm. you know, his campaign, well, his, his campaign formally hasn't started. But, but you know, his popularity has really collapsed. So... So that's just fascinating. Trump is is the front runner. Whether you look at the polls or the betting markets, uh, I mean, as for the Democrat side, I think that's more interesting because, you know, they're obviously the party in power in the White House. President said he's running again. I'm sure. Well, most Walking. of the party don't want him to run again. Hmm. That creates an extraordinary tension, right? Because he is the president, and they can't they can't really overrule him. Um, you know, unless they kind of declare him. You know, somehow insane or something, you know, but I don't think that's going to happen. But if he says he's running again, he's running again. And, you know, whatever the party apparatchiks think, that's just going to happen. But, you know, my view is, though, that because his decline, at least in my view, his cognitive decline mm. is so obvious um, that I just don't think he will be the candidate. I mean, I, I don't have a, I just, it's just my sense because that's it's one and a half years away and it's, he's already, you know, saying things that don't make sense. So yes. it's only going to be right. It's only going to be worse. Not going to be better. So, yeah, I'm. I'm starting to feel nothing but sympathy for the old man. I just you like. Yeah, me too. Actually, machine. me too. Yeah, you me don't too. have to do this, Joe. You don't have to do this. He should not be doing it. Have a rest. Yeah, hey. look, that's my view. I mean, the question is, how do they get someone else in there? And that's very difficult. You know, given that he wants to run. <laughs> you know, so. How do they change his mind? Anyway, sorry, go on, Matt. Change, change his mind. But that's the problem. I think his mind is slowly, sadly, uh, going. Hey, what causes – you mentioned the, the, the opinion polls, you know, DeSantis down, Trump up. What are the drivers behind that? Because DeSantis, on a policy level, nothing's really changed from when he was riding high for Florida. So I don't understand why he's what, – what Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I don't think the media scrutiny of him or mentions has really changed in the last six mm. months. I still – I still think it's all about the same, but for some reason, Trump, it's Trump that's become more popular. And I think the only thing you put it down to, and maybe it's counterintuitive, is that there's all these attacks on him constantly, whether it's the New York case or the rape case or whatever it is. And, I mean, he said it in his CNN town hall just last week or the week before. I think, you know, every time he's attacked, he goes up five points in the polls. 
that's kind of what's been happening. Um, so I don't know whether there's a sense of nostalgia amongst Americans for the Trump period where at least until the end, the economy was very good, uh, you know, inflation was low. I mean, uh, you know, maybe there's some nostalgia, but, that, but that's hard to believe given the mainstream media, generally speaking, constantly attacks him, you know, over January the 6th and over his, you know, whether it's handling of COVID or January the 6th or, or, or you know, documents or whatever it is. I mean, he's constantly attacked by the mainstream media, but that seems to make him stronger. I mean, I don't, I don't have the answer to that question. It is very strange. And back in November, no one would have foreseen this. Well, he's an attention magnet. I mean, even in this conversation right now, he, it doesn't matter whether he's president or he's challenging in opposition, we are talking about Trump. I don't know how he does it. Well, he's an extraordinary showman. I mean, he's, he's a great politician. You have to give him that. Um, I mean, he really has come back. And I guess it's to his credit. I mean, let's, it might not last. I mean, you know, it's very hard to predict things one and a half years out. Um, but certainly he's done very well. Um, and the mainstream media is having to is having to talk about him more again because he is high in the polls. That's why you saw CNN put him on for an hour last week. That was very controversial. But they did it. And, you know, I mean, I... I you know, the argument was, well, he's the front runner, so he can, you know, he should be on TV, and that's that's fair no, enough, no. I guess. The argument is ratings, Adam. Ratings. Well, yeah, that's right, that's right, and he did rate very well. I think three and a half million views or something like that, which was which is quite good. Um, so look, there's going to be more of that, and it's hard to see how they can find any other scandals. You know, I mean, they've thrown <laughs> absolutely everything at him. So there's nothing. Surely there's nothing else. So so I don't see how some new scandal is going to hurt him, you know? Uh, you, you'd be aware of uh, in Australia, we have this kind of sleepy uh, middle majority who don't really care about politics, but they're forced to vote through through compulsory yes. voting. So it's really a race for the middle to catch any attention you can and depth doesn't matter as much. Uh, in the US, is there, because you've got optional voting, how many people vote, what, 20% of the eligible people, something really low? Oh, no, much more than that. Much more. I don't know the how figure, much? but it's more than half. More than half. More, more than half the country votes. Yeah, for the presidential election. I thought it was yeah. less than 30. All right. Well, well I, in could any- be wrong. I could be wrong, but I think it's more than half. Okay. Well, in any case- I mean, uh, of, of, of the voting age population. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. In yeah. any case, do, is there also that same disengaged uh, middle who just vote anyway or not? Because they're, it's all optional. Are they all quite engaged and passionate about which way they vote? Oh, no, I don't think, you know, I think it's, well, look, obviously there's a large group of people who just don't vote and they're obviously not engaged because they don't vote. Um, but of those who do vote, and look, I mean, I, you know, I don't vote here, so I'm not, I'm not, I don't know, but my sense is that it's a very complicated system here. I mean, when you go to vote, there's so many different names on the ballot and it's not just one race. It's, you know, there's a state race, there's, there's the federal, you know, the president race, then there'll be, there'll be some referendum questions, so there are there are so many things to vote for. It's extremely confusing, and then sometimes there'll be you know vote for judges, mm. uh, uh, you know vote for local elections. Um, so very few very few voters would be across all those races. I mean, it's it's just impossible. Right? So so I think people just tend to vote the same, you know, for the same party down the ticket, um, which you know is sometimes helpful for some candidates and sometimes not. Uh, so I, you know, I wouldn't say people are more, more engaged here than in Australia. I mean, I just, I just don't know. It's hard to say. It's a lot simpler in Australia because it's just a small. 
Okay. Well, it was stunning to see some of the elections here. Uh, people were voting for very simple slogans. I guess we did that as well with Abbott, but here Labor won a lot with some very thin policy, which was interesting. Can I ask you about uh, the 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 US um, the, the future, just broadly, you know, not an election prediction, but the the AOC millennial types coming online here in Australia, definitely. You know, I've had some key labor figures on this show showing the data where swinging left with the millennials who want to empathize more than reason, which is you know, empathy and reason both important, but they they would sacrifice reason for for let's not leave anyone behind, no matter the cost, right? So in the US, uh, what do you foresee? Is the AOC phenomenon taking off that type of politics or has she had her run? Not just her, but that that style. Uh, look, look, she's so young. What is she? God, is she 30 yet? I don't even know. She's she's incredibly young. She's got a, a huge future ahead of her. Mm. Uh, she's very famous in the US. Indeed, she's famous in Australia. I mean, you're talking yes. about her. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's always going to be a small percentage, you know, single-digit percentage of people on the left of politics that really like that sort of politics. Uh, you know, her strident, uh, superficially very left-wing politics, and I say superficially because, you know, she's very much the modern left. I mean, I don't think she mm. cares as much about things the old left used to care about, about wealth mm. inequality and income and, you know, the, you know, taxation and distribution. These are kind of intellectual weighty topics, which I don't think the modern left really cares that much about anymore. It's about, you know, it's, it's about reparations and yes. uh, transgender issues, bathrooms. Yeah. I mean, I would say that these are kind of niche issues, Uh I mean, I'm more of an old lefty. I think the issues of distribution and wealth inequality and that sort of thing are far more important. But mm. but the modern left doesn't really talk about those things anymore. And frankly, the rich people vote for the Democrats. So, I mean, overwhelmingly, right? I mean, the Republican Party has shifted to become the party of, of the working yes. class. Yes. And and the Democrat. I mean, overwhelmingly, I don't have the figure with me, but I mean, overwhelmingly, the richest places in America are Democrat. I mean, Washington D.C. say very rich city. Ninety-three percent vote Democrat. Ninety-three. Mm. I mean, that's maybe unfair because of the bureaucracy and so forth. But but in, but in all rich cities, that's the case. Um, so you know the the image of AOC is fighting wealth inequality. I mean, it's you know it's kind of a fraud, really. So the modern left that we've just talked about that uh, is that. Do you think that has a bright future in the US? Ah, uh, yes. Because I think as people get richer and richer, uh, you know, ordinary concerns don't. Uh, well, I guess reality is is less relevant to their decision making. I mean, it's more about virtue signaling, basically, because the the richer you are, the more you can virtue signal, the more you can afford to virtue signal. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing in Western societies that are quite wealthy now, just constant virtue signaling, constant, uh, relentless, and and the people that virtue signal don't have to worry about consequences because. Well, because they're wealthy. That's 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 the reason, right? It, it, like they're not affected by these decisions. So you get a lot more emotionalism, I think, in in politics. A huge amount of emotion. You know, far more than you would have had in the '60s, say, or the '70s. Uh, you know, that's 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 my theory, anyway. So, um, yeah. And the left. Well, you know, the left is very interesting. I mean, it really has changed so much. I mean, I think the candidacy of uh, Robert F. Kennedy is very interesting mm -hmm. in the U.S. because he, to me is like an old left candidate. I mean, he's mm. kind of has the same views as John F. Kennedy and his father, which mm. were like anti-war, mm -hmm. free speech, you know, strong social security net, very critical of bureaucracy and the CIA and the FBI. I mean, all those all those entities that the left used to hate in, in the 50s yep. and 60s, they saw them as very conservative entities and they used yep. to hate them. 
Yeah. Well, he has all those positions. They're, they're, they're his positions, but now he's he's seen as right wing somehow. I mean, that, that, that just goes to show you how much the modern left now quite likes big government. Sorry, they quite like the security stage and the FBI and the CIA because they perceive, and, and perhaps rightly, they perceive that, that they've captured those institutions, right? Yes. So they control them. Um, and so they're quite happy about that, you know, because they control them now, whereas in the 50s and 60s, you might argue, the conservatives control them. Um, well, that, that's the difference, right? People, they don't realise it's not that the left now likes government and, and power, it's that the left is government and yes, power. Yes, that's they, right. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's yeah. right. I mean, and that's why, I mean, you know, the, the left-right thing is completely broken. I now see, like, society divided between basically authoritarians who quite mm. like state government power, mm. and, and I'd, I'd include most of the modern left in that. They, they don't really care much about freedom of speech, you know, all those old-fashioned 18th century ideas, they don't like those, right? They could they can certainly dispense with the US Constitution. I mean, so the Bill of Rights, at least. Yes. Um, because they're all very old-fashioned ideas. Uh, so the authoritarians, which I would include, you know, kind of big tech, you know, government, the bureaucracy, most of the mainstream media, they like censorship. You know, they like being able to, you know, kind of destroy the little guy. Um and then kind of everyone else, which includes elements from the right and the left, I would say, you know, kind of anti-government in general and in favour of individual rights. I guess I'd put myself broadly in that category. Uh, you know, I think that's the divide now. And I don't know what the right words are. I mean, I said authoritarian. I think that's, you know, I think that's fair. I mean, some people scream socialist at these people, but I think that's totally inappropriate. They're not socialists. They're, they're quite happy with extreme wealth inequality. Yes. You know, yes. I mean, yes. I mean, the Democrat... Uh, you know, the big tech billionaires who fund the Democrat Party, they're not socialists. Are you kidding? <laughs> I mean, they're certainly not going to give up their wealth. Um, absolutely not. So it's more of a kind of a Chinese-style or CCP-style model, I suppose, where there is huge wealth inequality. And that wealth is kind of integrated with the governance of the country and it's just one party and there's no free speech and you do as you're told. <laughs> right? That's that's kind of the ideal. You well, know, maybe okay. I'm being unfair to these people, but that's that's how I perceive it. All right. For, well, for the rest of the the, the rest of our time, I'll, I'll won't go say left right. I'll say authoritarian and, and individual rights. So yes. with these author, authoritarians, I'm interested to see. So the modern left and the authoritarians were all about specifically on vaccine supporting vaccine mandates and so on. Because RFK Robert F Kennedy Jr. Uh, I only knew of him. I was ignorant. I only knew of him as being the one out there fighting against the vaccine mandates and, in fact, the vaccines in general. So he was taking a very anti-authoritarian view, yes. opposite to the modern left and opposite yes. power structures. So how is it possible that he's now in that very same power structure, the Democratic Party, and polling well? Well, I mean, yeah, he's polling about twenty percent amongst Democrats, Huge. but I would say they're the old Democrats I was talking about before. Uh -huh. That rump of a fifth to a quarter of Democrats who still have the old ideals. Um, I mean, I quite like him. I mean, so just, just so your viewers know, I, I think he's great. <laughs> I mean, I went to his launch. I really enjoyed it. I agree with him on most things. I think he's very eloquent and very principled. And those, those two, those two characteristics are, are extremely rare, I would say in modern politics. And that's what mm. appeals to me. I mean, he's had a, he's had a very varied and interesting life. Um, but I wouldn't say he's part of the power structure. Indeed, I think he's extremely dangerous to the power structure. And I think you're going to see the mainstream media, and they already have, but you're going to see even more, mm. more vicious attacks on him, mm. extremely vicious. I mean, he's more dangerous than Trump, far more dangerous than Trump, because, because RFK is an intellect, right? Yeah. He actually has ideas, whereas Trump, 
you know, as, as kind of entertaining as he is, I, you know, I think he's kind of more Machiavellian and, yeah. and less of an intellect, less principled. Uh, but RFK is principled. He hates, for instance, the CIA and the FBI, right? I mean, he said last week, once again, that he thinks the CIA killed his uncle and his father. Mm. I mean, that's they're, that's they're pretty extreme statements, right? Whether you kind yes. of agree with them or not, they are extreme things to say. Yes. And if this guy could be president and believes those things, that's incredibly incendiary, <laughs> right? So, so I think he's very much an outsider. And I think you know what what will be interesting is if he decides to run as an independent, because uh, he's probably not. going I mean, as much as I would like him to get the, the Democrat nomination, it's very unlikely, right? He's yeah, got the whole yeah, yeah. he's got the whole Democrat power structure against him, the White yes. House against him. Yeah. Um. So, you know, he might get thirty percent, and that's great. But the interesting thing is that how do they buy him off not to run? Because uh, if he like runs, Bernie, yeah. if he runs, surely Biden loses, like straight away, just done, right? So they're going to have to try to stop him running somehow. But I don't know what they can give him. I mean, he's already famous. He's already a wealthy man. I, I, I think they'd be quite worried, actually. If I was they, him, I'd yeah. run just to just to be spiteful. I'd run uh, to to completely derail the Democrats because although. The left like to say, oh, he's right wing, he's right wing. He's not really. So my point here is most of the votes that he takes are definitely going to be from the left, not the right. Okay. Uh, well, so that's why it's so damaging to the Democrats if he runs, especially with a name like Kennedy. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's it's a left-wing royalty name in America, right? But somehow they got uh, Bernie Sanders, who was for many decades, at least from my view, it was quite consistent and principled, and then you just rolled over and sold out to Hillary. Yeah. Yeah, look, I used to like Bernie a lot back in back in 16 for those reasons you just said. I mean, I'm always drawn to people with principles, yeah. <laughs> you know, whether, I just, whether I agree with them or not. I just think, oh, wow, someone believes in something. It's incredible. Yeah. And Bernie did believe in things. And I really used to enjoy, you know, enjoy his views. I mean, he was kind of very against the bureaucracy and against big corporations, just like RFK is. Mm. But yeah, but as you say, what happened? I mean, I'm I'm saying rhetorically, what the hell happened? I don't know, but you're not the only one that says this. People say this, like, what happened to Bernie? <laughs> what did they they injected him with something to change his brain? I don't know because he's not the old Bernie anymore. At yeah, all. I, I wonder if we'll see some shape shifting from people like AOC. Don't seem to have much. Um, consistency at all she might shift as well hey can i get you to turn your view back to australia i wanted to ask sure. you about this this tweet that everyone can see on the screen so you've put up this ad from our amazing uh labor government in victorious about our suburban <laughs> rail loop so you've said what's wrong with australia in a single job advertisement what is your problem with this ad <laughs> well look i mean i was you know making a flippant kind of comment, but I think there's, there's an underlying point. I mean, that we have so many of these, what I would say, jobs that are, you know, pointless or, or you know, some people say bullshit jobs. Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a phrase people have used before, but very highly paid. Um, and I personally think they're quite destructive. I mean, that's, that's my view. I think they're kind of like they're ideological jobs, really, uh, to enforce certain ways of speech and codes of behavior, you know, much like existed in the Soviet Union, but we just kind of call them different things. Um, and, and, you know, it's not just that that train authority. I mean, these these jobs are in all organizations now, private and public. I mean, that was an egregious example because, I mean, from memory, the salary was, what, $250,000? What, what was yeah, it? So it for, was extraordinary. For the, 
For the people listening, uh, this is a job uh, for a manager of inclusion and diversity at the government state rail loop authority in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. The salary range is Australian one hundred seventy-five thousand to two hundred thirty-nine thousand. Okay, okay, okay. There you go, two hundred thirty-nine at the top end. I'm not sure mm. if that includes super or not, but still, it's a very good salary for. Something that I think most people would wonder, you know, most Australians would say, why does a rail authority need that position? You know, what I mean, aren't they you know, trying to build, you know, build a rail loop or whatever? Isn't isn't that the highest priority? Why are we spending two hundred fifty thousand dollars on that? And you know, especially in a state which has an enormous fiscal problems, right? Enormous. Is it? Like, a- there's a debt crisis in Victoria, isn't there? And yet they can still <laughs> afford that. Well, we can't. That's the thing. I was going to say, Adam. You know that we've cancelled the um, airport rail here in Victoria. It's really it, yeah. It's just, so Daniel Andrews in his election campaign, people are putting his tweet out now because they've got the receipts where he says it's so terrible that people, you know, it's been ignored for so many decades. We will get it done, and he's just announced that um, we're not doing the uh, airport rail loop anymore because they don't have enough, enough money. But it, they've already wow. got fly, flyers still going out to residents in the area saying we're building the rail loop. And but you know, yeah, that's one of the things, yeah, that I thought Melbourne really needed. I mean, as someone that used to visit it quite a lot, I used to think, why is there not a high speed link from Tullamarine to the city? <laughs> you yeah. know, it's a big city, it's a rich city. Where is it? But so you've just told me it's going not ahead. Okay. It's not happening. It's not no, happening. Okay, well, all right. That's announced in the media. Uh, so that, I guess that may change, but not happening. And uh, this job is probably one of the few that remains. You know, these inclusion and diversity offices were spending a lot of money on stuff besides building rail. Yeah, look, I mean, I don't really have a good. Yeah, this you should talk to a sociologist about this stuff. You know, about like how these these jobs manifest themselves. It's it's a cultural thing. It's hard as an economist to justify that. I think because it's well, it's hard to see what the purpose is. Well, let's lean into your so so to finish off. Let's talk about you a bit yes. more. So you've got a master in uh, philosophical economics, economic philosophy. Is that uh, right? Uh, no, so I have a master of philosophy in economics, which is basically a master of economics. Oh, uh, I thought got, it was about. It's got an old fashioned. It's got an old fashioned name at Oxford. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So, what what is your opinion of Australia? Are you go to stay in America? Are you happy? Is it is life better over there? What's it like? Uh, yeah, look, I mean, it's a great privilege being here. This is my third stint, I guess, if you like, at being in America, um, and, and certainly the longest. Uh, so I'm here until the end of next year, so until the presidential election, and that's the end of my term as a Washington correspondent for The Australian, and I'm you know, very, very fortunate to have this job, very, very grateful. Uh, it's an extraordinary privilege to be in what is, in many respects, the capital of the world, you know, for, for, for almost four years. Uh so yes, the, it, yeah. Then I'll come back. Um, you know, maybe to my old job, economics editor. I'm, you know, I'm not sure, but uh, it's still one and a half years away. So I haven't given it, you know, huge thought. But uh, um, what else did you ask me? Sorry, I, I forgot. So I, I just <laughs> thought you, I thought you had for something with the philosophy thing. I thought well, maybe we can ask you about the oh, economic well, yeah. thing. So where where are we headed? So I guess this uh, what do you the Keynesian experiment has proven? Mm. Well, some are saying it's failed, but I'm kind of thinking even as a kind of a libertarian kind of guy i'm thinking it's it's really succeeded like it's got the whole world on board we're all still living very rich lives and everyone says it's going to crash it's going to crash and yet I know, somehow it hasn't. I know. no yeah it hasn't. so it hasn't and you know i mean i was one of those people who were wrong back in 2012 13 you know i think there could be a lot of inflation because of quantitative easing and so forth wrong didn't happen i mean that said there was asset price inflation extraordinary mm-hmm. asset price and that's another issue but but there was no consumer price inflation really until now, you know, the last couple of years where it's where it's been pretty bad. So, um, you know, the thing I'd say, I mean, as somebody who's studied economics for a long time, I mean, there are very few principles that economists agree on. 
So it's more of an art than a science. I mean, I think a lot of economists like to think it's a science. It's really not. <laughs> In fact, I mean, take macroeconomics and take that core issue of inflation, probably the most fundamental question of economics. You know, what causes inflation? Mm. Complete disagreement, total disagreement. Mm. I mean, isn't that extraordinary, right? I mean, some economists will say it's the money supply mm. and others will say it's got nothing to do with the money supply. It's all about, you know, supply and demand and cost and, you know, cost push and demand pull factors. You know, that's kind of the, that's the Keynesian view, if you like. And the monetarist Friedman view is it's got more to do with the money supply. But they can, that's, that's complete disagreement. And, you know, these are the most intelligent people in the world who disagree on this fundamental issue, right? So that's the problem with economics. Uh, it's a great discipline because it makes you reflect on how societies function and what's right and wrong, I guess. Uh, you know, um, but there's no correct answer to problems. And I think too much economic reporting, if I can be critical, too much economic reporting just kind of assumes that there is a correct answer where there's, yeah. you know, so say interest rates, you know, yeah. say, yeah. you know, everyone was attacking poor old Phil Lowe for, for poor his state. <laughs> well, poor, I mean, I'm biased. I, I'm biased. I know Phil Lowe and, you know, he was my boss when I started uh, okay. at the RBA many years ago when we're still friends. Yeah. So, so I'm biased, but, but, you know, he's been attacked for saying that, but I mean, he, he didn't do anything wrong. All the central banks said the same thing, basically. Mm. Uh, and frankly, anyone that believes any government forecast is a fool. I mean, governments don't know the future at all. I mean, we've surely just seen that. I mean, you know, budget forecasts, economic forecasts, just all nonsense. I mean, it really is just all nonsense. It all just comes out of some mathematical model and they're disproven, you know, in the next day or two. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, so, I mean, there's a purpose for them, I guess. You like to try to forecast, governments try to forecast, but they don't have much utility really. Um, then the, the best problem- forecast is the current is the current state of affairs. That is the best way to say. So, so what I'm trying to say is the most likely outcome tomorrow is whatever is happening today, <laughs> right? Okay, short term view. But the, yeah. that's the problem, Adam. Is as much as all this might be, dis- we can't agree on what inflation is, and models are crap, and so on. We're making yeah. some serious decisions based on all of this ephemeral, ethereal stuff. And so, is is, econo- is economic policy just kind of hoping for the best? I know it's a, that's a simplification, but it just seems yeah, like look, we don't think, really know. No, look, I mean, I think you're, maybe this is not answering your, your question, but, but you made a really good point earlier when you just said there's been all this criticism from the right of yeah. Keynesianism, all that. But actually, things are still kind of okay. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, the society yeah. is not, not collapsed. We're all much richer than we were 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I don't really know where I was going with that, but I just... I mean, as someone who has criticised, you know, big deficits and all that yes. stuff before, I realised that my side or my side has been wrong about all this stuff, you know, about the great yeah. inflation breakout post-GFC. It didn't happen. So I think we need, I guess my point is we need to be humble, right? We, we don't know as much as we think we know. And society is very complicated and there's no rule book really. Uh, that said, I do think, and, you know, gosh, I'll probably be proved wrong again, but the last two years of inflation have been very, very damaging, far more damaging than I think the elites realise yet because most elites doesn't really affect them. They're either government workers, so their pay is indexed, so they don't really care, right? It doesn't affect them or they're just rich, so it doesn't really matter. But, you know, you've seen a huge decline in living standards amongst ordinary people who are employed in the private sector and whose incomes are not indexed, right? They are poorer than they were three years ago and in some cases a lot poorer, Um you know, you're seeing it in things like airfares. Families won't be able to holiday overseas anymore. They, they can't. The airfares have just gone through the roof. 
this is particularly relevant in Australia where, you know, it was already expensive to travel. Now it's much more so. So I think people have seen that they are now poorer uh, in a fairly short space of time. And the question is now whether wages catch up. They don't really show much sign of catching up, do they? I mean, what have we had? I mean, let, let's just say Australia. I don't know the figures, but let's say over the past 24 months, the CPIs increased, what, 15%? Yeah. Okay. Over 24 months, something like that. Yeah. That's a lot. Wages have increased, have not increased anywhere near that level. No way. Are they suddenly going to go up 10%? I doubt yeah. it. So basically what you've just seen over two years is this huge reduction in people's real income. Massive. Um and I think the repercussions of that are going to be significant. It's going to be a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, a lot more scepticism of the elites who, as I just said, are doing fine. <laughs> uh, you know, I think it's very sad. I think it all goes back to COVID policy. I mean, the whole inflation, it's all due to the stupid COVID response. Obviously, the massive money printing, the stupid policies, just all of it insane. And, of course, the bureaucrats and politicians will say, oh, it's Russia's fault or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. They'll make up some stupid excuse. When it, it's, it's their own fault. They caused it. They did it. Um, sorry, I'm getting off on attention again. Adam, Adam, got, I, have to I, yeah, I thought that too, but uh, I'm detecting, unfortunately, uh, as living standards get worse, people are gravitating towards government handouts. They're demanding that more is done for them or have some bonus or whatever. And so I'm worried that we're just going to head down that, that hellhole, and which, of course, well, most classical uh, people would say, well, that's a road to ruin. But as we've just talked about, the, the, if I can use this quote, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay yes, solvent. Yes, a good quote. I think that was Keynes. Extremely brilliant man. Um, uh, well, look, it's a road we all went down in the, in, the, in the 60s and 70s. I'm thinking of Britain. They went down that road. And eventually, in Margaret Thatcher, there was a sudden flick back. Uh, mm. So I think... Maybe you're right. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I, you know, I just don't know. I think, I mean, it's the last few years have made me very, very humble about my, about my predictive abilities. So, uh, I can can tell you what, it's done a a horrible thing to this little libertarian over here. I'm suddenly very incentivized and motivated to go and get a job at a local government library, work for a year, get bullied, and then go off on work cover for life. I know plenty of people on 100% wages. just on that point, I mean, yeah, it, the, the, I mean, I guess I'm more of a libertarian end. Like, I don't think I'm a pure libertarian, but I've been extremely depressed by the past three years because I've realised that the vast bulk of people do not share my views at all. I mean, I'm in a distinct minority, right, mm-hmm. very much. And I think one lesson for people on the so-called right in Australia is they used to always like to appeal to the common man, right, to make their point. They used to say, oh, this is just nonsense. The ordinary person wouldn't think that. And in some cases, that's right. But look what we've just learned for the last three years. Yes. The common man, in my view, was completely wrong, totally and utterly wrong and extremely destructive. And the common man basically put pressure on politicians to do crazy stuff. And they did. Of course they did because they want to be popular. So you had this insanity. And so basically I've just seen that, you know, no longer can I make that that point about, well, what does the common man think? Mm. I don't think because the common man can be very stupid sometimes. And I think we just saw that. So I think that's an interesting lesson for the right, that they can no longer appeal to ordinary people to justify what their views are. You have to actually have your own principles. And whether or not other people agree with them, that's irrelevant. Uh, so that's something I've learned. Um, yeah, anyway, sorry. Adam, last <laughs> little question before we say goodbye, sure. Adam. Uh, media, new media. So you're, here you are. I'm very grateful you, for that you're, you're here because you've got a, a big honcho from, from big land talking to a little man 
uh, little media company, so to speak. And uh, I don't know why you came on, to be honest, because there's no incentive for you guys to come on. No, well, so- I just am nice. <laughs> I was nice. I mean, uh, you were polite and, you know, sure. And you've interviewed other interesting people. Have you interviewed other journalists? I can't remember. Uh, no, just you and Hitchens. I've interviewed a lot of people, okay. but not, not journalists. But w- what is the view of new media in the halls of power of established dinosaur media, if I can throw a little jab at you? But, um, you know, yeah, we are eating fine. your yeah. lunch. We, we are eating your lunch a little bit. Maybe not me, but, you know, the Rogans yeah. and the Tim Pools and yeah, whoever else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think there's going to be a new equilibrium is going to emerge. And I think quality publications in the in the mainstream media, the traditional media, if you like, will survive. I mean, they are surviving. I mean, you know, the Australian's doing really well. The London Times is doing well. Wall Street Journal's doing well. Uh, They've moved to a subscription model. Obviously, there's less advertising than there used to be. There's more subscriptions. But I think they've done that pretty well. Uh, And I think think that's the new equilibrium. I don't think they're going to vanish. You get all these arguments all the time. Oh, they're going to die. They're going to die. I've been hearing that the entire time I've been at the Australian. And we're not dead and we're not going to mm. die. Mm. So yeah, but that's just nonsense. It's just, it's just you know, some people are just very hateful and they want certain institutions to to die. Uh, you know, if you actually look at the financials, whether it's News Corp or, or Nine or whatever it is, they're doing fine. Their revenue's increasing. They're not shrinking. Uh, and the population's growing, you know, so there's always more viewers and, and readers and so forth. So look, I mean, it's a different world, obviously, from you know, from media twenty years ago. But I don't think it's gonna, it's gonna die. And I think the, you know, the independents that you mentioned, uh, you know, they kind of keep us on our toes. I guess they're a, mm. they're a nice kind of counterpoint, and and they're a good check. I mean, yeah, let's be frank. The independent media, you know, the Rogans and so forth, did a much better job, I would say, on COVID than the mainstream media. Mm. And mm. and if it wasn't for the Rogans of the world and all that then it would have been even worse. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, so I think I think the diversity is good. People have a lot of choice now. I mean, you know, in Sydney you can read any newspaper in the world. I mean, the idea that, you know, there's a natural monopoly in media now is just completely absurd, completely mm-hmm. absurd. And I know some of our former prime ministers like to make, make that argument, but it's the most stupid argument, right, because you can literally log on the internet and read any newspaper you want for a, you know, for a fee sometimes. So there is no monopoly completely ridiculous uh but yeah but uh you know i'm happy t- to work in the media still it's a you know these jobs are rare and it's a privilege and uh you know i'm very conscious of that uh and well, if um, pe- you know, i hope it continues many years <laughs> well if people want to check out uh, adam's writing you'll see him in the australian uh, also on his twitter profile which i'm a happy follower of adam underscore Crichton, but i'll put the links to yeah. all of this in the description if you like what we do we don't have a paywall uh from rupert we have just our supporters <laughs> at locals so go to discernible.locals.com the reason why you get so much free content here is because of a very small group there who support us financially adam Crichton, you're a legend for coming on thank you very much sir thanks matt that was a pleasure to talk i really enjoyed it you have a good day thank you.